Hello and welcome to the Interfish Podcast, where we discuss the most interesting and compelling news in the seafood industry. We've been on hiatus, so if you've been missing our podcasts, that's because we've been in the air, or we've been in different countries, or we've been crisscrossing all over the world. So we're all back in our chairs for the most part. Uh, today, joining me are Rachel Sapin in our Seattle office, John Evans in Brazil, and Demi Corbin in London. And I guess we'll kick it over to you, John, since uh, right now the most uh, pressing issue in the seafood industry is the Chilean, Chilean protests and the Chilean, uh, uh, the Chilean uh, salmon industry's struggles with logistics to, um, to, to handle it. So just give us an update on where we are, what we can expect. Um, well, speaking to sources today, um, you know, they're saying that 50% less salmon has arrived in the United States from Chile this week. So that's not a good place to be, although um, circumstances seem to vary from uh, company to company. The, the protest began just over a week ago after a prior site was announced for fares on the metro in uh, Santiago, the capital. And the protest spread as demonstrators um, showed their anger over a number of issues, including uh, social inequality. But um, speaking to uh, companies this week, you know, the industry seems to be running at about 50% capacity. And there are predictions that if uh, this goes on, that um, it could be completely paralyzed, as we uh, reported yesterday. So which areas are primarily going to feel the effect of this? When we're talking about logistics, when we're talking about locations, where where, where right now is the is the biggest pinch? Uh, the biggest pinch is on, in Chilo, uh, Chiloe Island, which I'm just writing uh, a piece about as we talk, which is in the south of Chile. And uh, it makes um, a, a quite an easy target for protesters to uh, prevent or certainly disrupt um, uh, salmon supplies uh, arriving on the mainland and then facing a long uh, hike up to Santiago for flights uh, overseas, particularly to the United States. Right. And I mean, already people are talking a bit about the potential price impact, but it seems um, a little too early to tell. We talked to... Uh, we talked to Norwegian exporters uh, and importers who do expect that there'll be some increase. People just don't quite know. We also talked to Baca Frost. They said basically the same thing, that we expect an increase if this continues on. But as yeah. of now, we haven't really seen the impact. But my expectation, certainly in the U.S. market for Chilean salmon, that we'll we'll uh, we'll see a uh, an impact, and we're going to look in that today. So we'll have news on that by by Monday. So John, is there any sort of what's going to indicate whether this gets better or or worse for the salmon industry? It's difficult to say at the moment because it's uh, despite um, Sebastian Piñera, the uh, Chilean president, um, introducing a package of measures including uh, higher pensions and a minimum wage etc. Um, it doesn't seem to have quelled the protests or not as much as they would have wanted anyway. I mean, I, I, we, we spoke about this earlier uh, offline. A similar sort of thing happened in Brazil in 2014. Governments in, in the region seem to be able to keep a, 
lid on uh, problems, um, you know, linked to social inequality. But from time to time, they do explode. And uh, that incident in Brazil in 2014 started with a, a bus fare hike in Sao Paulo and then spread uh, nationwide. And this Chilean uh, event seems to be uh, of a pretty similar nature. Yeah, well, we'll be watching it closely. Uh, again, as of now, it appears people are uh, in a little bit of a wait and see in terms of price and supply. But as you reported, John, if we're down at about 50% production, that's going to have a cascading effect on not just salmon in the United States, but salmon worldwide and probably other species as well. So it's going to be, uh, it, it's going to be something to, to watch. We'll stay on it closely. Let's stick with salmon. Uh, while we were on hiatus, uh, Canada once again snuck up and hijacked our our coverage diary. Rachel, you were following this pretty closely. Not only do we have uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's uh, eked out win, we also uh, we also uh, had a, quite a bit of controversy uh, from Cook, although it was in their main hatchery operations. So. What what's the what's been the the ultimate fallout from that? And just give us a quick uh, ten penny tour of of what happened there. Yeah, so it was pretty um, pretty eventful. Uh, what happened is this animal rights group based in Washington D.C. called Compassion Over Killing. They went undercover to Cook's operations in Maine, where they have an Atlantic salmon hatchery that supplies uh, the salmon specifically to the Martha Stewart True North Seafood Line. And they published this really disturbing footage of um, the video, you know, uh, of uh, revealing putrid conditions and the and breeding diseases and people stomping on fish's heads and just really cruel kind of inhumane uh, treatment of the fish. And they submitted the video and a complaint to the main department of agriculture who is still reviewing the video. I actually contacted them a couple days ago and they're still reviewing the video. It's still under investigation, but the goal of this group is to get Martha Stewart to drop Cook's line, um, you know, and they've done it uh, before they've gotten Tyson, I believe, to change over to some plant-based food. Um, they are uh, pretty, pretty heavily tied to a big uh, group in Washington called VegInvest, which provides early-stage capital and guidance to companies working to replace the use of animals in the food supply. So, yeah, they're they are out to really promote veganism, and Cook is really felt the impact of this investigation. It, it went pretty far. It was in all the mainstream media. And so, yeah, Cook was just trying to recover, start farming that trout in Washington State, and uh, this happened. Right, yeah. They, they There was some news out that uh, Cook began to, uh, began to recover, right, in, in Washington State, as you just said. So this, this sort of hijacked that for, um, uh, for them a bit. Uh, is there any is there any indications of uh, of what this uh, what this group might do next? Did you get the sense we actually tried to get a hold of them right and do an interview, which was kind of an interesting response from them? But did you get any kind of sense that they're going to uh, do this? Uh, they're going to be targeting aquaculture. That any of these animal welfare groups will begin to target aquaculture more. Because I, if I remember, I mean, Demi, they were just in at Billingsgate, right? Not too long ago, some of these groups. 
and there were several people arrested there. I can't remember the groups, but um, as part of protests. So. Yeah, this group is very interesting. I've just noticed I've kind of followed them uh, on social media is where they really get the most traction. Uh, they're just getting people to sign a petition. They ask for donations. This is all kind of part of their way of getting more money for their group is um, saying that we need to fund these important investigations. And then they kind of harass Martha Stewart at her events um, and online to try to get her to change her mind. And and so far, um, according to Cook and um, just from what we can we know from Compassion Over Killing contacting Martha Stewart, she hasn't done anything actually to alter the Cook line. So I don't know how far this one will go, but, um, you know, this group, um, they are very aggressive. Um, and I think it is part of a, um, a larger advocacy movement for kind of veganism in the U.S. So, yeah, I don't know. It could it could go further or it could just stop with Cook. Um, it's kind of hard to say at this point. Yeah, I think the the group in particular is very interesting just in the fact that they, as you mentioned earlier, Rachel, have these ties to uh, to the investment group. And whether or not there is a, a direct link uh, between the um, the sales, for example, that they get from uh, from their vegan investments and this kind of opposition that, that is aimed at getting people to eat less, uh, fewer animals. Um, it was very interesting, and they certainly did not want us to write about it um, and actually tried to condition an interview uh, that you were going to do with them on us not mentioning those ties, which the ties, in short, correct me if I'm wrong, but it was that the head of the Veg Invest Fund is the chairperson of uh, Compassion Over Killing. Isn't that correct? Yeah, she is on um, She's on uh, Compassion Over Killing's board, yes. And she also um, Lee is leading Veg Invest. So, yeah, she's got very direct ties um, to both companies. But uh, we are, yeah, she's the board chair. So, yeah, she has a direct connection between those two companies. And we were told by lawyers for Compassion Over Killing after trying to learn a little more about how they did their investigation, you know, um, have they kind of thought about the conflict of interest with this kind of tie. We got a letter back from their attorney saying that um, this is accurate information, that she um, is both on Compassion Over Killing's board and leads Veg Invest. But um, she's a longtime volunteer board member. It's clearly labeled on their website. But any characterization of, I guess, saying there's a tie between these two entities for her is inaccurate, I guess, is what they've been telling us. And they say that they won't um, speak to us if we bring this up again in a conversation with them, which was uh, interesting. I didn't know you were actually allowed to do that. Um, in terms of uh, the free flow of information we generally have in the U.S. And they kind of promote themselves as investigators. Um, so I thought that was a really interesting uh, response to us and definitely very, it kind of obscures their mission a little bit. So, um, yeah, I'm definitely curious to see if we can learn more about them somehow. But at this point, they're pretty closed off in their methods for how they um complete these investigations so it's kind of they're in a weird spot they're an advocacy group that says they're doing journalism which is interesting it's interesting to follow yeah uh yeah um rachel has already um she already heard my rant on this in the office about it <laughs> because it's just 
ridiculous. Um, and I don't think in my 20 years of journalism I've ever run into a seafood company that has said, well, do the interview if you don't write about this. Kind of that the, the, pre, the prenup agreement to an interview. So... That sort of says something. <laughs> yes. So, and, and the threat was interesting. I, I think she kind of underestimated sort of, um, she underestimated Intrafish is what she did. But that's not a threatening letter. I know threatening letters. I've gotten threatening letters. Probably from some of our <laughs> listeners. But anyway, uh, yeah, the journalism's under enough threat to, to you know, to have a, to have a an NGO say that that there's ground rules on on accurate information that you can mention is um, anyway this isn't a podcast about journalism I'll, I'll curb it I'll curb it there I've already it's ranted it's always a podcast about journalism and well I, you're right I feel you're like right. transparency is what you know these companies are telling wanting other companies to be transparent or these NGOs so why can't they live up to the same standard um, it's just it was a little disappointing that letter and I I do hope that we can come to some better agreement where we don't have strange ground rules that don't let us actually learn more about both sides of the issue. Because sure, Cook was in the wrong. This was a disturbing video. But um, we do want to know how this investigation happened. And I think that's fair to the people who donate to COK and, and our readers and Cook. Wow. Well, you put it succinctly and we're able to, to put it in a rational way. So thank you, Rachel, for... <laughs> for explaining it in, in a in a good way rather than listening to me go off. Um, okay, so Demi, you are complaining about jet lag this morning, this afternoon, because you've been on a I don't know how many hour flight from Chennai uh, back to London and uh, for the goal conference. And it sounds like it was a fantastic conference, lots of takeaways. But we wanted to just have you focus a little bit on on shrimp, which tends to be, at least historically, has been sort of goals focus. And uh, being in India, of course, it was an even larger focus. But just give us sort of a, a quick couple bullet points about what is what are the biggest issues right now in the shrimp sector that they're trying to tackle and that are uh, that are kind of most shaping the the trends in the industry. Um, so I'm going to focus a bit on the shrimp market in India at the moment. So uh, they were mentioning at Gold that we're going to see an 18% hit to the overall production levels compared to last year. And the main issue for that is not any anything to do with an economic slowdown, which people tend to say is the reason, but it's actually because of diseases. So um, there's been a widespread uh, disease within the Indian shrimp market, the white feces syndrome, which basically affects the, the growth of shrimp. And it's been quite prevalent since 2018. So what they're trying to do now is trying to see how they're going to treat those diseases. But um, let's not forget that the Indian authorities actually banned using antibiotics in, in shrimp farming. And the main reason for that is that First of all, they just want to reduce antibiotic use because in general, it's set to rise by 33% by 2030. And that's just crazy. And there's a lot of repercussions to using antibiotics. And when you use antibiotics in shrimp uh, farming, it's not like in salmon farming where you can treat each, each fish individually, but you just have to treat all the shrimp together, which, which tends to be quite tricky. So they were, they were talking about using alternatives such as probiotics and phages, and that's what they want to try and do in India, but they 
they they still feel that the industry is quite uneducated in terms of antibiotics in that sense and what what is needed now is that for farmers to get educated about using other alternatives since antibiotics are banned but then someone mentioned something interesting is that there's only one bacterial virus within shrimp farming in India and most of the rest are viral uh, viral uh, diseases right and so just just on the other side of that, Demi, on the downstream side of that, there was discussions mm-hmm. about whether or not antibiotic-free should be labeled. It's becoming more of an issue. Uh, I certainly see it uh, in the UK on my uh, travels. You can run into it now. You see it a lot in the US um, and some in other countries as well. But um, there's pros and cons to that. Was there any kind of consensus on where the industry should go with antibiotics? Sometimes when you label something, the first thing a consumer thinks is, well, wait a minute, then it does in other times. And it can give you a sort of a sense, uh, it can give kind of a negative, uh, a negative cloud over a, uh, over a food product if you're um, kind of touting what's not in it. But was there, what were some of the discussions around that? Well, yeah, it's funny that you mentioned the UK because most of the people that were talking about this uh, on a, in a panel were actually from the UK. So we had Will Rash, who manages Big Prawn Company, and we had someone else from New England Seafood. Uh, so basically, they're, what they're saying is that we need to be careful about labeling antibiotic free because the a- average consumer might be confused because they they don't really understand the message while it's isolated so so what what they're trying to understand is that are we going to reach a level of labeling antibiotic free the same way we started labeling seafood as uh, cert- uh, certified and sustainable so that's that's the track that they're moving towards uh, but also in terms of antibiotic usage, what the United Kingdom as a region, um, they think that even the industry doesn't have a baseline um, knowledge about antibiotic alternatives, nor do they know how to set um, particular limits to how much antibiotics could be used in seafood production. So that's a whole other issue. But it's a very high priority at the moment, and but they're still wondering what to do about labeling in terms of what the customers want to see and what retailers are also asking for. Well, thanks, Demi. And, uh, and we want to hear a lot more about Goal, and there's so much other news that we need to, to hit on. But as I said, we've been so busy and moving around so much that we haven't even had time to sit down and digest all this on our podcast uh, yet. So we'll talk more about what you found in Goal. We'll talk more about the Groundfish Forum, which myself and Nina Unlai attended in Berlin last week. And John, I hate to say it, but we're going to have to talk about Brexit next week as well. So I know that I know that you're probably getting tired of explaining that to everyone, but that's uh, that's on the agenda. I was there in London during the protests and uh, I will say that Brits know how to uh, make funny signs a lot better than any other country they've been to with with uh, protests. So that was pretty remarkable. Um, and I have some great photos that I need to get up online for us. So anyway, all right. Well, thanks, everyone. Have a great Friday. And we will speak to you next week. 